Well, it's a great morning to be here because all the senior pastor staff is off in war, so you get to hear me preach. Uh, I'm just kidding. But we're actually starting a brand new series this morning that I am very excited to kick off, and I have the honor to kick off. And to do so, I want to begin with a little word association, if you're all okay with that. So if I were to say the word American, most of you would know what I'd be referring to, correct? Yes, good. If I were to say the word Egyptian, most of you would know what I'm referring to, correct? Okay, I see some heads nodding. That's good. What if I were to say the word Canadian, eh? You're laughing, so I'm assuming that means you understand that one. What about a comedian? Not a Canadian, a comedian, although they can be together sometimes. But a comedian, right? We know about that one. Okay, what about this one? What about Christian? Now, why did it get so darn quiet all of a sudden when I brought up that one? That's a little awkward, isn't it? We know an American, an Egyptian, a Canadian, a comedian, but when it comes to Christianity or this title Christian, it's like, well, that's a good question. It's like, I've heard this term my whole life. I've even associated myself by this term, but I really don't know what that means. I really don't understand that. And I bet if I were to take you and break you up into groups of 10 and ask the same exact question, what is a Christian? You wouldn't get the same answer 10 times. You'd get maybe five, maybe eight different answers to this question. And that's why if someone were to walk up to you on the street and say, are you a Christian? Some of you would say, well, yes, I am. And others would say, well, what exactly do you mean by that word Christian? You see, because for me, I was raised in a house that when you prayed a certain prayer, you became a Christian. And for others, maybe it's you were baptized at a young age. You don't remember it. Your parents tell you and they show you Polaroid pictures of it, but you don't remember this event, but because you were baptized, therefore you're now a Christian, right? And some of you might say, well, no, no, it's not about that. It's not about prayer. It's not about baptism. I was a Christian. You see, I was born into a Christian household where my parents went to church, but I made some bad mistakes in my life. And because of that, I am no longer a Christian. And some people would complain against this and say, no, 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 there's no such thing as a was Christian because once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. And some people would say, no, 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 it's not about what you believe. It's about what you be or how you behave. See, isn't this interesting? There are so many different ways that we can apply this word to our lives. And yet it's something that we all call ourselves by. It's a label that we all give ourselves that can have so many different meanings. And I bet that there are probably a few of you in this room who would say this, I hate Christians. Ooh, I hate anything that has the word Christian in it. In fact, I might go as far to hear you say this, I hate Christians, or you would say, Christians are judgmental, homophobic, moralists who think they're the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. <laughs> right? And maybe you don't believe this, but maybe you know somebody in your life who does believe in this. And that's why if you were to go out on the street and have somebody ask you, are you a Christian? You would say, well, can I, yes, no, can I qualify as that? How do I respond to that question? What do I do with this information? Well, the good news is what we're talking about this morning. None of what we've just talked about is actually defined in the Bible as being a Christian. Woo, good news, right? But on the other side of it, what we're going to seek to discover is this, that this word Christian and all of its derivatives, Christian, Christianity, and the singular and the plural, it's only used three times in scripture. Only three times that we'd actually see it appear. And in each one of these instances where we see this word appear, it's used in the same general context. You see, the word Christian was a derogatory term back then. It was a derogatory term. It was a label that was placed upon people from an outside group. Even this group of Jesus followers never use this word to describe themselves. They use another word, which we'll talk about in just a couple minutes. 
But this word, it was a derogatory term. It was a negative term that they would never call themselves by. It'd be like saying Greek or redneck. Actually, it'd be a lot more derogatory than that. But if I would say it up here on stage, I'd probably lose my job and I don't want to offend you. So I'm not going to do that, right? So it was a very negative context of the word. It wasn't something that people wanted to be called by. And eventually this group of people gathered together and they saw these Jesus followers. They said, you're all dressing the same way. You're all speaking the same way. You're all thinking the same way. You're all following the same kind of person. You're just, eh, right? And eventually this eh group of people said, well, you're one of those people. And they labeled them and they branded them and said, oh, you're just one of those Christians. You're just a bunch of Christians and nothing more. See, it was a derogatory term. Nobody wanted to be called this name. In fact, when we look at scripture, when we read in the book of Acts, we see the perfect example of this. And Acts is such a great book to be reading in because it tells us exactly what happened after Jesus left and how the church got started and how we ended up here. And there's one particular passage we're going to be reading this morning from the book of Acts. Jesus has just left the earth. And as he's left, his followers, who are called the followers of the way, they were in Jerusalem and they were trying to figure out what they were supposed to be doing because their leader had now gone. And this massive persecution befalls on the land. Massive, horrible things were happening to these followers of the way. And so they didn't feel it was safe in Jerusalem, so they scattered. And most of them traveled a very long distance away and they went to an area in modern day Turkey called Antioch. And when they got into Antioch, they met with these Jewish and these Gentile and these Roman people, and they started to teach them the things that they had seen when Jesus was alive in Jerusalem. They said, hey, we just came from the land of Judea where we saw God do miracle after miracle after miracle. He even rose somebody from the dead. We saw it with our own eyes. And there are other people too who saw this. And they have such passion and energy as they're just preaching to these people in the land of Antioch that they say, whoa, something is different. How can I find out more? And so they started gathering in large numbers and more and more came to hear the words that were being taught by these followers of the way. And eventually they become so enthroned with this knockoff form of Judaism. They said, let's start a church. And they started their own church. And more and more people began to come in and learn about Jesus Christ. And the word eventually gets back to Jerusalem where there's a couple guys by the name of Peter and John and Matthew. And they hear this report that something weird and strange is happening in Antioch, the least of places they would expect it to happen. So they say, we need to figure out if this is true. So they call one of their guys by the name of Barnabas to come and join them. They say, Barnabas, we want to send you to Antioch just to find out if these reports are true. Can this be right? That there's a church started and there are followers of the way growing in massive numbers in this land? There's no way this is happening. So Barnabas gathers his stuff and he treks the long distance and he gets to Antioch. And when he's there, he is overwhelmed by the number of followers of the way that he sees. He's just so enthralled to see so many people coming into the faith. And he's so overwhelmed, he doesn't know really how he's supposed to report this or how he should even begin to engage this topic. So he says, I need to call in reinforcements. It's so big here. So he says, the best person that I can think of is the super apostle by the name of Saul, who later becomes Paul, who later writes most of the books in the New Testament and later founds most of the churches that we read about in the New Testament. But anyway, so Saul is down in, Ant or I'm sorry, Saul is down in Tarsus, which is his hometown. He's visiting down there. So Barnabas leaves Antioch and he travels down to Tarsus and he gets Saul and Paul and they will go back into this land of Antioch and they're starting to preach and there's just so many things happening. 
And these Greek-minded, Roman-speaking people are just gathering in massive numbers. And a church is flourishing, and they're teaching, and they're just winning more and more people for Christ. And so it says in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So all of these Greek-speaking people, they're embracing the message of Christ. And Paul and Barnabas, they're just preaching and they're bringing more and more great numbers. These numbers that couldn't even be written. There's so many people coming to the faith. But what's so cool about this is this next verse. It says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. You see, they were first called Christians. It wasn't a label they gave themselves. It wasn't a name they called themselves by. It was a label that was given to them. They were first called Christians by the people that were around them. It was a label that was put upon them. Well, that's great that we're using scripture to kind of help prove the point, but could there possibly maybe be anything historically outside of the Bible that would tell us or allude to this idea as well? Well, obviously, if I'm bringing it up, the answer is yes. So some of you may be familiar with a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. And if you're not, well, then you can just nod your head and say you are and impress the people that are around you. But Tacitus, he wrote in the late first century and he died around 117 AD. And he writes primarily about four or five different Roman emperors, one of them in particular being Emperor Nero. In fact, most of what we know about Emperor Nero comes from Tacitus's writings. In Tacitus, he tells us that in 64 AD, Nero did something extraordinary. Nero didn't like Rome. He was unpleased with it. So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start this over. So he decided to burn Rome to the ground. Well, as you can guess, that didn't really go over well with the people. (laughs) They lost their homes. They lost their businesses. They were put out of jobs, their territory. They lost everything that they had had. So the people were angry at this and they wanted to blame somebody. So they're starting this revolt and this rivalry to go against Nero. And Nero, he's kind of awful. He's like, well, I don't understand why people are getting mad at me. It's not like I burned. Oh, wait, actually I did, right? He's like, it's not like I've done anything to hurt them. And so he says, you know what? I don't want to be cast in this negative light. So there must be a group of people that's in the land that everybody already hates that I can pass the buck off to. There must be some group of people that I can shift the blame to and say they're responsible for this and have all the people in Rome shift their anger and their frustration and their violence towards them. And you know who Nero happened to find? The Christians. He just happened to find the Christians. And this is so interesting. We pick up with Tacitus' writings. Keep in mind, this is the first century. He says, consequently, to get rid of the report. What report? The report that Nero had burned his own city to the ground. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class. I mean, it's a group of people who were hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. You see, this wasn't a phrase that Christians used to define themselves. It was a label given to them by the populace, by the people, by these outsiders looking and saying, oh, you're just a bunch of Christians. They didn't really have another phrase for this. And for those of you who think that the Bible is just this not really connected, isolated piece of stuff that doesn't correlate with history, 
Tacitus goes on to say something so profound in the rest of his writing. Look what he says. He says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin. Let me pause here for just a second. This is so fascinating. See, the people, they said, well, we know his name is Jesus and his last name is Christ, right? Like Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and Jesus Christ. It's his last name. So we're just going to call them by their last name like believers or Justin Bieber's fans. I know it's terrible that I use that reference in church, right? But just like we have believers, it's like, oh, this Christ, they must be Christians. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's just call them Christians. So Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty of death, as we see here. It says he suffered the extreme penalty of death. Let me go back in my notes real quick. Can you go back one slide, Tony? I'm sorry. Uh, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. Now we know in the New Testament, it also says that during the last days of Jesus, the emperor Tiberius is actually the emperor in the land. So it coincides with biblical history as well. But there's this guy, this Roman historian in the first century that says, look, check this out. In the land of Judea, there was this guy by the name of Christus, by the name of Christ, who raised up this following and caused and stirred up some trouble. And because of this, the Roman authorities felt that he needed to be put down brutally. So a man by the name of Pontius Pilate led this public execution of this Christ-like figure. Isn't that crazy? That even in Roman history, after the fact of the Bible, completely separate from it, it tests the fact that there was a powerful man in Judea named Christ who was put to death by a man named Pontius Pilate. It's so crazy when we start to look at this and we start to read of all of this here. But this is Roman history. And this is one of the few, if not one of the only periods of time that we see this historical evidence be proven in the context of the situation. But what's the point of all of this? Why do I bring this up? The point is this, is that these were outsiders looking into this movement, trying to give it a name. So they decide, you know what? We're just going to call you Christians, this group of people that we don't want to really be associated with, that we're just going to label this. And even Peter talks about being persecuted as a Christian. We read it again in scripture. It says that the Christians were hated amongst the people. Even Paul, when he's on trial, the king that's conducting the trial, he says, what are you trying to make me a Christian? See, it was a derogatory term. It was a term that nobody wanted to be labeled by. And see, the, these people, they didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves something far more terrifying, something far more disturbing, something far more convicting than being a Christian. And when we look at the Bible and the New Testament and the Gospels and the book of Acts, we see them being called a specific name. And it's a terrifying name. You know what it is? It's the name Disciple. That's what these early followers of Christ called themselves, not Christians. They called themselves disciples. And the reason why this should be terrifying, the reason it should be unnerving to us is because disciple is defined in scripture. You see, Christianity isn't really defined and you can hide behind it all day long. I can go into the war in the name of Christianity. I can do all kinds of stuff in the name of Christianity. I can define it. I can redefine it, undefine it, misdefine it. I can bend it and shape it and mold it to make it whatever I want it to be. And nobody can grab the Bible and says, uh-uh, it says right here that as a Christian, you can and you cannot do this. That you should, this is your title. This is what you're supposed to do. It's not what it's about. And when we look at this, we see that the disciples called themselves, or these people called themselves something different. It was a disciple. It was more than just a Christian. And if you were to ask them, hey, what are you? They would without a doubt say, we are disciples of Christ. And it's a term that is used every single time from this point on in the rest of scripture. And it's a powerful title. 
well, that's great, but what is a disciple? If we're not going to call ourselves Christians, what does it mean to be a disciple? How should I define this? Well, the English word for disciple is the same as it is in Greek, and it's the word methetes. And it simply means a learner, a pupil, an apprentice, an adherent, or a follower. You see, it is a disciple is a person who looks to someone else for guidance, for direction and provision. To say, tell me how I should be living my life. See, this is much different than Christianity or being a Christian. See, because being a disciple means that you are breaking down your own barriers that you've put up and saying, I am going to allow somebody else to direct and have control of my life. And we live in a society that doesn't want us to believe that because our society says you're only going to succeed if you do it yourself, that you have to achieve fame. You have to achieve status. You have to achieve your own recognition. You have to work to make something of yourself. It's all about you. But being a disciple, being what these original followers of Jesus were, was so much more than that. It was about relying on God to be their sole source of provision and direction. How crazy is that? It's so powerful when we truly start to look at this. And they referred to themselves and to others as disciples. And we see this and found in other places in scripture as well. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says this. So the word of God spread and the number of disciples, not Christians, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And then a little bit later in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, it says, when he came to Jerusalem, by the way, he refers to Paul. And keep in mind, Paul was a major persecutor of Christians at the earlier point of his life. So much so that when he had this conversion, when he actually became a disciple, people didn't believe him. They felt that he was just trying to get into their churches and infiltrate the ranks so that way he could overcome them and arrest them and put them to death. So it says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples not Christians, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. You see, this is how they called themselves. They were disciples and followers of Christ, not Christians, disciples. See, we can all hide behind this name and this label of Christianity. But when we truly start to look into the New Testament and the gospels and the book of Acts, and we ask who were these people and what characterized their lifestyle, it's so much more powerful than that. When we look into this original word, this insider term, it's crazy when we think about it. And it brings us to this terrifying question. And the terrifying question is this, are we disciples or are we just Christians? Are you a disciple? Are you a radical out of this world follower of Jesus Christ? Or are you just a label that somebody has placed upon you? And it's crazy when we really dig deep and start to see this. You see, I can define and redefine Christianity all day long until it fits my lifestyle. A Christian is a, and fill in the blank. And I can morph it and I can bend it to be exactly what I want it to be. But when you look at this term, this original insider term that they called themselves, holy cow, it's crazy. It's insane when we see the power behind this title. And when you truly begin to live the life as a disciple, guess what? You're going to get called names like Christian because it is a powerful and a moving thing. And in scripture, we read a story of where Jesus actually takes a step further to define to his followers what a disciple truly is. He says, if you truly want to be a disciple and not just a Christian, then this is what you need to do. If you don't listen to anything else that I'm going to say, if you don't do anything else that I'm going to do, if you don't get anything else in your life right, I want you to just get this one thing right. And you know what? This isn't something new. If you've been at church at all, you've heard this thousands and thousands of times. And I wish it was something new where we could say, wow, that blows my brain. I've never thought of it that way before. But this is something that's so more profound. 
that if we had just gotten this one thing right, not the reading the Ten Commandments, not listening to what the New Testament has to say, not following the writings of Paul, but if we truly seek to live by this one principle given to us from the mouth of Jesus himself, our world and our nation in particular would be such a different and a better place. It's crazy when we look at this. So when we're looking at this story, it's fascinating. You see, here's what happened. Jesus is at the very end of his ministry. He knows he doesn't have much time here left on earth before he goes to heaven. And so he's trying to gather his guys together to have a last meal with him. And Judas is already left to go betray Jesus. And he knows that. And Jesus is saying, my time here on earth is short. So I want you guys to lean in close and I want you to hear what I have to say. Because there's something very important I need to teach you before I go something that will radically change your lifestyle. And you need to listen to this one thing above everything else in my life. And so we pick up in John chapter 13, starting at verse 33. It says this, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. At this, Peter kind of raises his hand and says, well, Jesus, what do you mean we cannot come? Jesus, we're your followers. We're your adherents, we're your pupils, we're your disciples, your disciples, your apostles. What do you mean we can't come with you? Where you go, we're gonna go. Doesn't matter how far, how wide, we wanna follow you. Is Simon gonna get to go? Because if Simon's going, then I wanna go too. Is Andrew going? Oh, come on, man. Am I the only one excluded in this? Right? And he becomes so focused upon this that he's missing the point of what Jesus is saying. So Jesus kind of stops him and he's like, whoa, wait just a second, let me finish my statement, right? And he continues on in the next verse and he goes on to say this. He says, a new command I give you. And this new commandment, this little Greek word, new, it means unusual, strange, odd, or impractical. And you know what? Really, this isn't something new to them at all. This is something they have heard thousands of times. But Jesus says, guys, listen, I want you to lean in close and listen to what I have to say. We were at 12, now we're down to 11. And I need to say this before our numbers get even smaller. This is radical. It's going to change your life and the life of others around you. Are you ready for this? A new commandment I give you. And then he goes on to elaborate and he says this in the next part of this verse. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. At this, John probably looks at him and be like, Jesus, I don't understand this. We've heard you say this multiple times. This isn't anything new to us. In fact, most of your ministry has been built all around this concept to love one another. In fact, even the Old Testament law is all about loving one another. What do you mean that we're supposed to love one another? So Jesus further elaborates it as this verse goes on. He says this, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I imagine just there's this awkward silence in the room. They're trying to process what they just heard and not really getting it. And I can just imagine Jesus trying to help them understand. He says, Matthew, do you remember who you were and what you were doing when we first met? You were a tax collector. You were a traitor to your people and the people hated you. People didn't want anything to do with you. People ran away from you. Peter, do you remember when we went and met Matthew for the first time, how you hated him? How there was anger and bitterness and animosity against you too? Do you remember that? And do you remember that we went to Matthew's house and you weren't on board with that? And do you remember when we were in Matthew's house that all of these people came in to dine with us who you shouldn't be associated with and you were irate at this? Do you remember the anger and the frustration and the feeling in that room? Because I do. But do you remember how I showed love to each one of them? Do you remember how I loved Matthew despite of who he was or what he had done? Do you remember how I loved each and every person that came and sat and ate with us? Do you remember that? 
Or maybe they're not getting that. So he says, do you remember that one time I gave that vampire sermon where I told everyone to drink my blood and eat my body? Do you remember that? Because I do. It was awkward, I know. Right? It's like the people in the crowd, they are just like, what? <laughs> right? And get up and try to leave. Do you remember how I looked out and I saw your faces in the crowd and I saw you get up and try to disappear into the crowd and leave my side? Do you remember that? Because I do. Do you remember how everybody was abandoning me and yet how I showed everyone love? How I still accepted every single person there? How I still offered forgiveness to every single person, including you who were about to leave me? Do you remember that? Do you remember the heartbreak that that was? But do you remember in spite of all of this, no matter what these people had done or who they were, that I still showed them love? That's why I want you to love one another. I want you to be a community, a group of people that are not just followers of me, but a group of people who seek to love others the way that I have loved them. That's what it comes down to. That's what Jesus says is truly the heart of this. And he even defines disciple in the next verse in verse 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the point of it, folks. You don't get anything else from the sermon today. It's this, how you know that you are truly a disciple of Christ. How you know by this, everyone will know that you are his disciples is how you choose to love one another. That's what it comes down to. We must be lovers of the people that are around us. And I know that you're all Christians, but the question is, are you disciples? It's easy for us all to say that we're Christians, but it's difficult for us to call ourselves disciples because we have a hard time loving the people who do us wrong and the people who are around us. Now, here's my favorite part of this passage. Jesus has just gone over this amazing, impactful part of this lesson. He's like, I want you to be defined by this one thing, this characteristic, this defining character of who you're going to be to love everybody around you, to love one another. And at this, Simon or Peter raises his hand and Jesus is like, yes, Peter, I'm so excited you're asking questions because I want you to get this. I want you to understand how big and how important this is. What's your question? We pick back up in scripture in verse 36 and it says, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? I can just imagine Jesus like, <sighs> right? It's like, seriously, we just went over this like five minutes ago, right? He's like, I don't understand. Like, why are you asking this again? He's like, don't focus on this. Do you understand anything of what we've been talking about? He's like, yeah, yeah, I got that level one. Uh, that's great. But God, really, where are you going? Like, I need to know where you are going because where you go, I'm going to go. Obviously, that hasn't sunk in between the two of us right now. Like, I need to be with you, God. And Jesus is like, no, I don't want you to follow me right now. I want you to be a lover of people. Peter's like, no, God, I, I really want to follow you. I want to be by your side. Jesus, I am willing to die for you. But Jesus is like, dude, Peter, check this out. In a couple minutes, this young teenage girl is going to come and wreck your faith and make you deny me three times, right? So watch what you say. But he's not saying this kind of thing. He says, no, I don't want you to follow me. I don't want you to die for me. He says, I want you to do something far more difficult, something far more hard for you to do in your life. You know what it is? To be a lover of the people around you, to love the people that nobody else will choose to love, to love every single person, whether they do right by you or do wrong by you, is to show them the love of God in your life. That's what I want you to do. I want this to be ingrained in all of who you are. He goes on to say, I want you to love them in such a way that when people look at your relationships, when they look at the way you love each other, I want them to step to the edge and peer in and say, look how they love. 
says that's what it means to be a disciple. Somebody who takes the love that they've received from God and seen how it's transformed their life and poured out to other people. That's what it's all about. That's what being a disciple truly is. He says, I want you to be a community of people that are defined by this characteristic of unconditional, generous, compassionate, out of this world, who would do this kind of love? That's who you should be. If you truly want to be a disciple, that is what it means. Can you imagine what our world would be like if we had just gotten this one thing right? Can you imagine how different our lives would be? How different everything around us would be if we just focused on this one thing where we said, forget being a Christian, I'm gonna choose to be a disciple of Christ. I'm not gonna take what anybody else has to say and how I treat them. I'm gonna be a ridiculous lover of people. And we're not just gonna be disciples who follow everything in the New Testament. We're gonna be disciples who seek to love people the way that Jesus would love them. Can you imagine how different our worlds would be? How different our lives and society and everything around us would be if we'd just gotten this one thing right? It's powerful stuff. And when we come back next week, we're gonna learn a couple of different things that are going on. But Jesus, he's hitting this point home for us today. He says, I know that stuff's gonna come up into play in your life. I know it's gonna be tough. But if you just seek to do this one thing in your life, your world will be radically different. And this will be the defining characteristic of how people will know that you are my follower. It's not by how much you know. It's not by how much scripture you have memorized or how well you think you know Jesus Christ. You know what it's all about? It's about how much you love people. He says, you know what? This is better than being a Christian. This is better than Christianity. This is being a disciple. This is being a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. As I close, there's two final things that I want to say to you all today. And I know that we're going to kind of jump into some different things next week, but if you're a follower of Jesus, blessings to you. And I encourage you just to give this a shot this week, just to try it for a week, maybe 10 days. And I know maybe your wife is a mess and your husband's a wreck and your kids are brats and your parents haven't had original thoughts since 1960 or 1970 something, right? I know that you're surrounded by idiots where everybody's an idiot and you're the only sane person that you know. I understand that. Trust me, I do, right? I worked at Disneyland. I know that very well. Um, Just kidding. So I know that very well. Trust me, I do. But what if you applied this principle to your own life? How different would your life be if you showed the people love around you the way that Jesus has shown you love? Think about that. Our lives would be such a different and such a better place. And Jesus knew this. And this is why he hits at home and he keeps talking about this again. He says, I want you to go by the ability of God's grace and be lovers of people, that people will look at you and say, look how they love. They must be a disciple of Christ. That's what it all comes down to. We say the best of my ability, by God's grace and the love that God has given to me, I'm going to show other people that same love. And I know it's not always going to work out because, I mean, Christ was crucified for this. This isn't a means to an end. This isn't a fix-it solution. But you know what? This is way better than being a Christian. This is truly about being a follower of Jesus Christ, but being a lover of the people around you. And the second and final thing that I want to say is this that for those of you who, because of what you've experienced or what you've heard or what you've seen, you truly do believe that Christians are these narrow-minded, homophobic, greedy, judgmental, you know, hope everybody goes to hell kind of people, however you want to define them. If I had grown up in the home that you'd grown up in, if I had lived the lifestyle that you lived, if I had seen and experienced the things that you've experienced, if I had watched your, maybe your dad beat your mom or watch alcoholism or drug or violence or abuse tear apart your family, 
if I had been to the church that you had been, if I had dealt the same things that you dealt with in your life, I have no doubt in my mind that I would feel the exact same way as you do. And I don't judge you for that. It doesn't bother me. I understand where you're coming from. I truly do understand that. But here's my hope for you, that with everything that you've seen, with everything that you've heard, with everything that you've experienced, and with all of your hesitation to ever embrace anything Christian, that you don't miss out on Jesus Christ. Because I know that there's probably nothing that anybody can say that's going to put Christianity in such a way that you're going to say, I want to be on board with that. But I hope that you don't miss Jesus Christ because your Savior and my Savior, he puts us all on equal ground. And what you don't like about me and what you don't like about Christians is part of what you don't like about yourself. And it's this, that we all fall short. And it's not of God's standards. It's also of our own standards. And whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, we're all confronted with this issue of what do I do with my shortcomings? What do I do with my failures? What do I do with my sin, my disappointment, the quietness I feel in my life where I don't feel connected to God? What do I do with this? And we all struggle with this. And I'm not saying this because I think that I'm better in any way, shape, or form. I am not. And I would hate the fact that Christianity has been so poorly represented to you that you miss out on the powerful work that Jesus Christ has done in your life. And I know this because as I read scripture through the New Testament and the gospels, I read that Jesus Christ, he came for all of us, that we all may have life and have it in abundance. Not just me, not just you, but all of us. He says, this is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus, to know that his love is never ending. His love is unconditional. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're done. He's still going to love you. And he still wants to show you and start the healing in your life. That's something that's both for you and for me. And I hope that regardless of how you feel about Christians, that you don't miss the powerful, important impact of what Jesus Christ has done for your life. And the last thing I hope is that if you are in this category, that you do come back again next week because we're just getting started with this topic. And it's amazing to hear what God has to do for us all. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we just praise you and just give you all the glory. God, we know that we have built up hesitations and fears and frustrations and anger and boundaries in our lives, God, that sometimes separate us from you. God, whether we're Christians or non-Christians or we're hearing this message for the first time or God, just if something just resonated through your words here today, God, we pray that you just open our hearts to be convicted by your words. God, where we can truly, when we walk out these doors, take a look at each and every person around us, every person that we encounter, and we ask ourselves, am I a ridiculous lover of Jesus Christ? Is the way that I act, the way that I treat other people, the way that I interact with the people around me, whether it's at home or in the car or at Chick-fil-A or Costco, wherever it may be, God, are we showing your love to a world that desperately needs healing? God, I pray that just with the love that you have shown us, the love that you have built inside of us, that it just becomes so overflowing that we can't help but show it to the people around us. God, make that our life's challenge, that we stop being Christians and we start being disciples. We love you, God. We give you this in your name.